This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 12, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The Wealth Explosion, the new book by Stephen Davies, details some of the theories that explain our planet's dramatic increase in wealth. As importantly, he details some of the hallmarks of a wealth explosion. At the Cato Institute in May, Davies spoke about the wealth explosion we're currently experiencing and why it doesn't have to persist. Uh, Well, I'm delighted to be here, and it's very appropriate, uh, and I'm very glad, uh, that I should be speaking here at the Cato Institute, because actually uh, Cato did a major part in supporting me in the research and work that led to my writing this book. Uh, It actually was written originally about 10 years ago, because I had been doing lots and lots of talks at various seminars and events, including ones run by Cato, and they were all about the broad topic you heard Ryan outline. And Tom Palmer, whom some of you will know, uh, was constantly badgering me to turn this into a book. And eventually I said, yes, I'll do it. Uh, And uh, David Bowes and Cato very kindly supported me in this, partly by arranging funding from the Earhart Foundation, which enabled me to uh, take a year off uh, work, have a year sabbatical, basically, to do the research. I have to say that during the course of doing the research, I actually changed my mind about a couple of pretty important things, which is always a good sign, really. Uh, I discovered that opinions I had had were actually not supported by the evidence when I looked more <laughs> deeply, so I, I changed the way I thought. Um, I'm afraid I had a bit of trouble with my publishers. Uh, I was being told by one publisher that the book was too academic and by another one that it wasn't academic enough. Um, and things were in a kind of state of limbo for quite a while until uh, my colleague at the IA, Philip Booth, uh, recommended me to the current publisher, John Spears. Uh, I recommend his list, by the way, it's extremely good. And uh, he then sort of commissioned me to uh, revise the book and uh, submit it. And so, fortunately, as I say, it's, it's come out. Uh, I have got another book coming out, by the way, from the same publisher uh, this September uh, called The Streetwise Guide to the Devil, uh, which uh, reflects another interest of mine. However, Ryan did a pretty good job there of setting out what, if it is really like, is the explanandum, the thing I'm trying to explain, the thing I'm trying to address, the question of what is it that makes the modern world different and why does the modern world appear when and where it does rather than uh, appear at some other time and place. Now, it's worth emphasising just how different the modern world is from the world of our ancestors. If you look at things like not only wealth but also other things like urbanisation, Uh, the role of women, the existence, or rather in the modern world, non-existence of widespread slavery, you become aware that the modern world is different not only from the immediately pre-modern world, but from pretty much all of human history. What becomes striking is the degree to which, at a certain elementary level, there's a kind of continuity across thousands of years of pre-modern history. And then there's a quite sudden and abrupt change in terms, well, relatively abrupt speaking, historically, that is, beginning in about 1760, 1770, which has been continuing ever since. Uh, Now, the most obvious example of this is the one that Ryan alluded to, which is poverty. Uh, If you look at the living standards of the average Italian peasant in the time of Julius Caesar, and you compare them to the living standards of the average Italian peasant in the 1790s, they're not that much different. Uh, The second one does have tomatoes, which the Roman peasant did not have, uh, but in many other ways, their life is very much the same. They're living in the same kind of way. If you look at the course of human history, there's very little uh, sustained rise in living standards, if any. At the same time also, certain other things are constant. It's very, very difficult 
to have more than 10% of your population living in towns and cities. Yet in 1851, Britain becomes the first society anywhere in the course of human history to have more than half its population living in towns and cities. Uh, the United Nations revealed that a few years ago, for the first time ever in human history, more than 50% of the world's population lives in, in large cities. These are radical revolutionary changes. Uh, and so you have to understand that, the degree to which there's a kind of severe discontinuity between the world we live in and the world of our ancestors and the experience that they had, the way they lived their daily life. Uh, the only two really comparable divisions in human history are the advent of agriculture in Fertile Crescent and the discovery of complex tools about 50,000 years ago. Now, the question really, which I, I suppose is my starting point, is why did this not happen sooner? Because if you think that innovation, dynamic economic growth, and all the rest of it are the product of voluntary human trade and interaction, uh, exchange, relationships, trade, business, commerce, these have been around in human history forever. Uh, so why did it take so long for this transformative process to begin? Why did it not start uh, at a different time and place sooner? Now, there are a number of episodes in the past where you can see the kind of intimations or first signs of that kind of modern transformation. Uh, efflorescences, as Dr. Goldstone has called them in one of his books. So you could point to, for example, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate in the Middle East in the eighth century. Uh, the lands around the Mediterranean, the Roman world, uh, in the second century AD. The biggest single example of this is China during the 12th and 13th centuries under the Song dynasty. Song China had an economy, uh, a technology uh, that was as advanced as that found in Western Europe in 1750. So the question then is, well, why didn't it keep going? Because that's what you find. In all of these previous episodes of sustained innovation and growth, what happens is that the growth just doesn't keep going. It either peters out or it is actively suppressed. Now, how and why does that happen? My thesis essentially is that there are two things which hold it back. The first is that our ancestors are living in a Malthusian world and a world of rigid scarcity where the great majority of the population are living on the edge of subsistence and where there are very hard natural resource constraints on what human beings can do. Our ancestors respond to this by creating all kinds of institutions, some formal, like guilds, for example, uh, or crop rotation systems, uh, others informal at the level of norms and rules, which prohibit various kinds of activities and insist upon certain social practices happening. Now, the aim of these is to give people security, but one of their effects is to check innovation, because innovation is risky. Most innovations do not work, and they use up scarce resources. And if you're living, for example, uh, one harvest failure away from starving, you don't want one of your neighbors using half of their seed stock on some kind of experimental farming activity because it probably won't work, and that's some really valuable resources gone, and that might make the difference between getting through the next winter or not. The other thing is that rulers all over the world, the people who own not the means of production but the means of predation, the people who control deadly force, 
uh, they have a strong incentive most times and most places to discourage innovation. Why? Well, in a sense, it's obvious. They're at the top of the pile. Why would you want things to change if you're at the top of the heap? Sure, if your kingdom becomes richer, it means more rent for you, and you can you know, have more fancy palaces or whatever it is you like. Uh, but it, it, to the extent that a middle class starts to appear, to the extent that your urban population and your peasant class become more affluent, they become more difficult to control. And the actual innovative process itself, which leads to the economic growth, simply leads people to question authority in a quite radical way. That in turn feeds the innovation, of course. And so elites, historically, very often deliberately stop change. Uh, China is the classic case, and I have a whole chapter on China in the book, talking about how the Ming dynasty that comes to power in 1368 systematically and consciously and deliberately reverses the dynamic, innovative society that had grown up under the previous Chinese dynasty, the Song. So those are the two uh, things. So the question is, throughout most of history, those two factors uh, lead to uh, any kind of movement towards the kind of dynamism that features the modern world being uh, either suffocated by the various kind of social constraints or deliberately uh, killed in the cradle, you might say, by action by the elites. So why does this not happen in Europe in the 18th century? That's the kind of core question of the book, really. Now, there are a number of explanations which I disagree with. One of them is that Europe was always different from other civilizations, that going right back to uh, at least the 12th century, maybe even uh, Athens and Jerusalem. But anyway, for a very long time, Western European civilization had a quality of dynamism, of individualism, and the rest of it that other civilizations lacked. There are two big problems with that kind of explanation. And this is the kind of explanation, by the way, which I originally believed in, but which I came to see was false when I did the more detailed research. The first is that if these things are always there, why does it take so long for them to have an effect. If medieval civilization has the same qualities of individualism and the rest of it that lead to rapid innovation from the 18th century onwards, why does it not have that effect at an earlier date? There has to be some other factor that you need to refer to. The other thing is that, quite simply, the facts do not stack up. If you look at the kind of institutions that people talk about, things like double-entry bookkeeping, uh, organized firms, uh, things of that sort, they are found in other parts of the world, in China, the Middle East, and India. They're not only found in Europe. And in fact, for most of its history, Europe is pretty much on a footing with the other major world civilizations, and in economic terms, really, it's a marginal place. It's a backwater. The real hub of the world economy for most of human history is the Indian Ocean and the lands around the Indian Ocean which includes the South and East China Seas. That is why the Portuguese are desperate to get into the Indian Ocean. They want to get a share of the action that's going on in that part of the world uh, and get a bit of the profits of the great trade and also cut out their Venetian uh, competitors who, along with the Ottomans, have cut them off from the Indian Ocean uh, trade. Uh, you don't find Indian or Middle Eastern traders who are desperately trying to get into the Atlantic. Even as late as the end of the 18th century, the Atlantic trade is much less valuable in terms of the value of the goods traded uh, than is the trade to China uh, and India. Uh, and so, essentially, uh, it's not the case that until the 18th century there's anything particularly different about Europe. Although, in, I will argue in a moment that the real change that makes it different thereafter happens about 100 years earlier. 
So my, my thesis really, I'm not going to go into the details of this because I want you to read the book basically and buy it, but let me tell you that my thesis is that something happened in Europe uh, in the um, 16th and 17th centuries which meant that thereafter people with power in Europe and indeed other large social groups in Europe had a different view of change than was the case either previously in Europe or elsewhere in the world. It's to do, I argue, with the way that the gunpowder revolution, the revolution in warfare that takes place all over the world in the uh, 15th, 16th centuries had a different result in Europe to what it did elsewhere. Everywhere else, it leads to the appearance of large hegemonic empires. So the Middle East goes from having many, many very unstable states to being controlled by just two large states, uh, Safavid Iran and, of course, the larger one, the Ottoman Empire. Russia goes from being made up of about 14 to 20 states to being just a single empire, as it's remained ever since. India is united by the Mughals. China was always united but becomes even more centralised than before. In Europe, this does not happen. For contingent reasons, I believe, purely accidental reasons, the obvious candidate for hegemonic power in Europe, which is Habsburg Spain, uh, does not achieve that status. Uh, not for lack of trying, Philip, Charles V and particularly Philip II are aiming to create a universal empire, as one of his contemporaries called it, but they don't succeed, mainly because they're unable to defeat their extremely stubborn uh, Dutch subjects. Uh, never get into an argument with a Dutchman, by the way. Uh, they, you may think they're very nice, like, you know, polite, friendly people, but they're also incredibly uh, strong-willed, as Philip found out. Uh, and the result is that Europe becomes divided into a number of competing states. And the rulers of those states have very strong incentives to innovate. Because they're in competition with other states, they have to mobilize lots and lots of resources in order to you know, keep up in the competition, because it's largely military at that point. Uh, and if you don't innovate, well, you end up like Poland. Uh, you end up being eaten up by your neighbours, because as you probably know, Poland is actually partitioned three times in the 1790s, disappears. Now, at the end of the 18th century, something happens. This is that the world becomes, by the standards of the time, quite severely overpopulated. World population has pretty much doubled between the 1690s and the 1770s. Chinese population slightly more than doubled, population of Europe just about doubled. The only part of the world that isn't seeing population growth at that time is Africa, for reasons that we don't really understand. Everywhere else, a number of things, most notably the potato, believe it or not, have led to a significant growth in world population. But by the time you get to the end of the 18th century, this is starting to push up against the limits of what the system can support. And in places like China in particular, you start to get very severe land hunger, uh, increasing problems of rural overpopulation, uh, starvation, the breakdown of rural agricultural systems and the like. And all over the world, this leads to a whole succession of major popular rebellions in the, at the end of the 18th, start of the 19th century. So you obviously have these all around the Atlantic. There's the French Revolution, there's the uh, American Revolution, there's all the revolutions in the Spanish Empire, uh, but there's also massive slave revolts all across the Caribbean. Uh, there are huge uprisings in southern and western China, major trouble in India and in the Middle East at the same time. Now, the elites in Western Europe respond to this in a different way, and they respond to it in a way that means that the by encouraging innovation and by ensuring 
that that innovation does not stop. They actually sweep away uh, many of the traditional social institutions like guilds and the rest that had inhibited innovative, dynamic, economic and other behaviour. At the same time also, a large social constituency for change becomes clearly established in Europe at this time and in North America as well. And what you then have is a period between roughly 1790 and uh, 1860, in which there's a knockdown, drag out fight between the liberals, broadly speaking, who want change and who want to free up society to allow greater individual initiative, more dynamism, and the conservatives, the term invented at about the same time, uh, who want to preserve the ancien regime and to put a lid on all of this. Uh, new dynamic innovation, and they lose the argument. Uh, uh, it's basically decisively won uh, by the Liberal side, and that's why the process doesn't stop. And after 1860, roughly, it starts to accelerate. So the rate of economic growth up to about 1860 is quite low by modern standards, but after 1860, it starts to accelerate quite sharply. Now, uh, this is all a thesis about history, but I submit also that, like all accounts of history, it has major implications for today for the way we view where we are and understand our own position in history, and also for what we might think about trends and developments in the world today. So the first thing I would say is that we tend to think of ourselves as being inhabitants of something called Western civilization. And there's a common notion that the spread of modernity means the spread of the West, of, the, of Western civilization. I reject that idea. Uh, what I think is the case is this. The modern world is so different from the past and the transformation has been so profound that in a very real sense, we are no longer living in Western civilization. Classical Western civilization, the civilization of the classical Christian West with its inheritance from the earlier civilization of the ancient Greeks and Romans, I think that basically became a dead tradition or memory at some point between roughly the 1890s and the 1950s. We are living in a new civilization, which happens to have originally grown out of the West, but which is no longer really Western. If you want to use a rather gruesome metaphor, if any of you have seen the film um, Alien, uh, you'll remember how the alien grows inside the body of the uh, spaceman and then bursts out of it. Uh, and I think, in a way, that's what has happened with Western civilization and the modern world that we now live in. It developed initially in Western civilization, but it then, in a way, uh, not just transformed it, but destroyed it. Something similar is happening with the other major surviving old world civilizations. We may see a global civilization appear, or it may be that we will have a number of different modern civilizations which draw upon the inheritance of the various old ones, but which are distinct and different from all of them. Secondly, though, this kind of process does not take place without a fight. Uh, if you look at the history of the last 200 years, what you find everywhere is an argument like the one that took place in Europe between pro- and anti-modernity forces. This is particularly acute at the moment in the Islamic world, but you see it elsewhere as well. And it, what is extraordinary is how the arguments made by the anti-modernists are always the same, and they constantly repeat. It's that the modern world is impious, it creates a way of living which is inhumane. It undermines respect for uh, higher principles. It encourages selfish obsession with physical well-being and money-grubbing. Uh, it undermines the proper relations of the sexes. This is the kind of argument that is made constantly. And so that debate is still a very live one in many parts of the world. It's not even uh, 
finally put to bed in the West, heaven help us. And so there is always the danger uh, that in some significant part of the world, uh, an anti-modern agenda will win the argument. And we will see a kind of modern rendition of what the Ming emperors did in China, a deliberate reversal and choking off of the modern dynamic world. And that would have catastrophic results. Uh, we have a population at the moment of 7 billion people worldwide. Until you get to the end of the 18th century, the world's population has never really gone much above 700, 600 million people. Uh, and that's because that is the most that the pre-modern economy can actually support. Now, we might be able to support maybe one to, at the very most, two billion people. But you can do the maths. If we do not have the kind of modern world we do, there's no way we can support the kind of population we now have, never mind about the standards of living. So that's another thing to think about, about what is going on in many parts of the world today and the revival or persistence of arguments which would have us roll back modernity or stop it. But finally, uh, there's also the problem of inadvertently or accidentally killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. Doing things which are not intended to do this, but which have the effect of stopping the dynamic world economy that we have. It could well be, for example, that we want to keep modernity, but try to abandon some of its core features, such as the use of markets and private decisions to allocate productive resources. This is what communism was about, basically. Marx and uh, his followers are big fans of modernity. Marx hated the opponents of modernity, but he thought that the way to run modernity was through conscious, deliberative allocation of resources. It turns out that that's just not compatible with it, and the result would be catastrophic. Uh, there are similar ideas around, and it could also be that if we're not very careful, what we will do is this. The great risk and danger is that we will create, and I think we are in the process of creating, a global regulatory regime, uh, which is intended to replace the often rather violent interstate competition that we had. Now, good reasons for doing that. War is not a good thing. You don't want to depend upon progress being driven by military conflict, and that's actually a bad way of thinking about it anyway. But the danger is that we create a kind of global regime which inadvertently, or maybe even deliberately, through adoption of things like the precautionary principle, restricts and chokes off innovation in the way that uh, it got choked off in earlier periods of history. And it's also possibly the case that certain institutions that have helped innovation in the past, like intellectual property, uh, may come now in, in the future to actually check uh, innovation. I think that is probably the case uh, increasingly, uh, particularly given the way that intellectual property is understood here in the United States and enforced. And I think in many ways that is the most uh, risky prospect in front of us at the moment. The chance that without really intending to, we'll create a kind of web of rules and institutions which will work in the same way as those moral economy institutions that I described earlier, and which will also change the incentives facing people with power uh, and make them once again go back to their default setting uh, of being hostile to innovation and wanting to stop it. And if that is the case, if that happens, which God forbid, uh, then as Ryan indicated in his introductory remarks, it could be that the modern world is just an episode. Uh, that really we've just had another efflorescence and it's gone on a bit longer than the previous ones uh, and been more profound in its effects, but it's still come to the same end. That would be the most appalling tragedy uh, because when I'm asked the question of when do you want to live, in which period of history would you like to live, my answer is always, oh, several hundred years from now. Uh, 
because uh, I believe firmly, and I am uh, prepared to back this up uh, to the hilt, that we are living in the best time there has ever yet been for someone to be alive. But if we continue the way we have been going and we do not make the mistakes I've said we might do, then the times ahead of us will be even better. Uh, and that's why I would choose to live in the future, in fact, rather than in the past. So thank you very much. Stephen Davies is author of the new book, The Wealth Explosion. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.